Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. This week, too soon? With the U.S. presidential election on the horizon, popularity of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act remaining flat, and some of its provisions set to expire in the coming years, we're taking a look at what practitioners should be planning for in this environment of uncertainty. Joining me in the studio is Tax Notes Today reporter Jonathan Curry. Jonathan, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Dave. Glad to be back in the studio. Now, you recently spoke with a practitioner who has been thinking about these questions. Who did you talk to? I talked to Brad Dillon. He's the director of fiduciary tax and trusts in Brown Brothers Harriman's New York office. What did he have to say? Well, we talked about a couple different topics. We talked about the um, prospects of policy change uh, in the future 2020 election, as well as what might change even if the election results don't really change a lot politically. We could see that some of the TCGA provisions expire. We have things like the 199A deduction is set to expire in 2026. The estate and gift tax exemption is going to expire, absent any action. And so there's a lot of sort of planning considerations around that. How do you mitigate the risk and how much stock should you put in any one particular proposal? We also talked a little bit about the questions about the entity choice when it comes to the 199A deduction. He has some really interesting things to say as far as how much clients are actually taking advantage of that provision. And I don't want to give it away. You just have to listen for it, I guess. But we also ended with a discussion of the Kasner case. That's a case that was just before the Supreme Court. And he had some interesting insight on what to expect when the Supreme Court rules on that. All right, we'll go to that interview now. Well, Brad, thank you so much for being here with us today. The the first question I had, of course, in the last election, Republicans took a beating. And the next election, 2020, we could see Democrats cement their control. And they could take a full control of the legislative branch. They could take the White House. And there's been no shortage of proposals from Democratic presidential candidates that are wanting to hike taxes in any number of ways. And so I'm curious, from your experience, which Democratic candidates' proposals are getting the most attention in your practice? I think that no one's focused on a particular proposal. There's always the sort of Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren who seem to have the sort of stronger proposals out there. But I think that people and clients in particular are, are focused on just the, the democratic field and what the sort of democratic zeitgeist is in the democratic movement right now, which is income, income inequality. I think that the focus on that and the focus on how to raise taxes, and you'll see, even when you look at the democratic candidates, I think they're now 18 and soon to be 19 with Joe Biden, that half of them have actually released proposals, like sort of not super detailed, but somewhat detailed, particularly for this early on in a race, tax proposals. And particularly when you look at the estate tax, for example, you know, those eight or so that have released proposals have all suggested increases in the estate tax rate from what is now 40% all the way potentially up to over 70%. And then uh, the lowering of the exemption from what is now, you know, a, a very inflated exemption uh, until 2026 of 11.4 million, all the way down to three and a half million. So I think, and then the you know, tax proposals otherwise are sort of set to expire from the T- uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. I think that people are just focused on the Democratic field, not on a particular candidate, but the sort of nervousness around, you know, what does this mean for our planning and our tax planning, our state planning in general? But I haven't heard someone say, oh, no, I hope it's not a particular candidate one way or the other. It's just the, the prospect of uh, Democrats taking true control over the not only the administration, but Congress as well. You mentioned planning. What are some proactive tax planning steps that clients can take or are considering? 
one of the interesting things is even in my my line of work or even an accountant's line of work or um, in a planner's a financial planner's line of work, I don't think that the prospect of a Democrat coming in is what drives tax planning. I think that even if you know my specialty is estate and gift tax planning, and even if you look there, we're always trying to drive people to do planning regardless of who's in the office. And the reason for that is our, the number one tool in the toolbox of an estate planner is get assets out of your estate as soon as possible because the future appreciation on those assets happens outside of your estate. So when the tax man comes along at your death and tallies everything up that you own, those appreciated assets that you got out in life are also outside of your estate and are not subject to the estate tax. We're saying that regardless. And we're saying that get assets out now, quickly, soon. That you utilize your, your exemptions now in the same way that we would no matter who's in office, no matter if it looked like President Trump was going to win a second term and the Republicans were going to maintain control of the Senate well, and maybe t- retake control of the House. We're still telling them your planning's not going to change. You have these exemptions available to you right now, and they're currently inflated, maybe sooner, but at least uh, at most, at least until um, uh, to the end of 2025. So use those exemptions now. Don't wait. Even don't wait till tomorrow or the next day. Do it now because all of that hap- all that future appreciation will happen outside of your state and subject you to a lower estate tax and a lower gift tax if you decide to make those gifts later. So we aren't looking at what could potentially happen. We're, our planning isn't changing regardless of what's happening in the Oval Office. Now, that's interesting that you mentioned the urging people to get their assets out of their estate now. And that seems to be advice that I've heard sort of unanimously in the estate planning industry over the past year. I'm kind of curious, though, are clients taking this advice or are they still sort of uh, leery about parting with large sums of assets? That's a great question, and I think it sort of runs the gamut. If our clients have the assets to part with, I think they, they're doing it. And the reason is that, of course, you know, we've seen these exemptions temporarily raised under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And so our strong advice is always utilize that while you have it. And you know, now that there are regulations that have come out that uh, signify that you know, there's, there's going to be no clawback, in other words, you use it or lose it, but they're not going to penalize you for using it. So you have this short period of time, this short window, where you can give away so much more for just eating up into your exemption and not having to pay gift tax. So if you have the assets, use it. The really tricky part comes in when you have clients who are sort of on the border of, well, we don't know how long we're going to live. We don't know what expenses we might have in the future. We want to be able to sustain our lifestyle until we die. But if we part with 22 or $23 million of assets, the collective amount for married couples to be able to give away, then that's going to really cut into very massively our ability to potentially care for ourselves in the future. We could do it, but it might be a tight squeeze. Those are the real the real planning opportunities that the ones I actually prefer and like because there's a lot more difficulty to it because you have to build in a lot of flexibility in the plan and a, a sort of um, a rainy day fund that, you know, the whole idea is that you get assets outside of your state and you can no longer control them and they're not for your benefit. But there are ways to build a lot of flexibility into a plan so that you could potentially get the assets back if you really needed to. You will have wasted your exemption in doing so, but at least it's there. It's not always in the back of your mind of, I wish I hadn't given away so much. And that way it's there and you've given it away and you know that if you don't need to touch it, that's great. You had a really excellent estate plan. However, if you live to be 104 and it turns out that your medical expenses are increasing as you age and things are happening that are outside of your control that you need more assets, the pot is there potentially to actually withdraw from. And there are a number of ways to build that kind of flexibility into a plan. And I think that's what we're doing. So we're still advising everyone who can 
afford it, to make these gifts while you have it, to temporarily increase exemption, the time of that, to utilize it. It's a use it or lose it, truly. And even though in the 103 years of the estate tax, the exemptions have never declined, really in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, they're very increased to a level that I think that people are, are finding that it could, there actually could be a first time where that exemption amount decreases or declines. I'm interested to find out what's more concerned to your clients. Is it the prospect of democratic tax proposals taking effect, even if there's not specific ones necessarily, like you mentioned, the just the, the zeitgeist of the democratic field being to raise taxes and undo some of the tax cuts? Or is it more just the possibility that we could have a deadlock Congress for the next couple of years, and then a lot of these provisions in the TCGA, like the estate tax exemption that was doubled, like that could expire, or the 199A deduction that could expire? I mean, the, what's a bigger concern? I think the bigger concern among our clients and among advisors that I speak to is the potential exploration of these favorable tax laws that were implemented under the TCGA. There is this prospect of of Democrats potentially taking control of the the White House and the Senate, but I think people see that as not necessarily a long shot, but something they cannot predict, and so there's not much planning to be done around it. Whereas we have a date that is codified into the law, December 31st, 2025, and we know at that point that our, our income tax rate are going to increase, the estate tax exemptions are going to decline, the GST exemptions are going to go back down to the $5 million adjusted for inflation, that the 199 cap A deduction of 20% for the pass-through entities is going to go away. The only sort of real remaining thing that will stand is the, cor- the new corporate tax rate of 21%. So I think that people know that there's this problem out there. And unless we have sort of probably re- Republican-controlled White House and Senate and House, that those favorable tax laws like are going to expire and go away. So I think people are trying to take advantage while they can and where they can over the next um, seven years, or I guess it's uh, six years now. Now, the Section 199A pass-through deduction, that one's received a lot of attention this year, and especially I've been covering the estate, estate and gift tax beat for, for a year or so. I see it come up in the family business context quite a bit. But like you mentioned, it's also set to expire in a couple of years. Does the uncertainty about the, the long-term durability of this provision come up in conversations with clients, or are they just excited to hop on board and figure out any way to take advantage of it? Truly, I think people were very excited about this potential uh, additional 20% deduction for their you know, family limited partnerships or their sole proprietorships or you know, their S corporations, those sort of pass-through entities that they believe that this deduction became available. But as we started working through the Section 199 Cap A, which is a monstrous section, it is truly a very meaty section that is just full of twists and turns and and limitations and other ways that it's been circumscribed. And it turns out that most people can't afford themselves of this new 20% deduction under that section. And it turns out there are so many limitations just for specified service industries. And the the list goes on for the, the kinds of businesses that it simply doesn't apply to. The list goes on for the kinds of wages or income in excess of certain amounts that would mean that you are suddenly now out of that section and are not afforded that section any longer. So as we've worked through it with our many of our clients, and I know other advisors have done the same thing, while they initially there was a lot of hubbub about Section 199 Cap A, it turns out that most of our clients haven't been able to afford themselves of the benefits of it because of all the restrictions and limitations that it also provides. There are a couple of circumstances where people are thrilled that it has worked for them, but mostly those are much smaller businesses or those are you know much smaller kinds of industries that aren't subject to the limitations or restrictions for the specified service industries under that section. And so those people, while they enjoy it, they also know that it's temporary and that that's going away. We've seen a lot more people more interested in figuring out 
whether they should restructure their businesses in the form of a, rather than a pass-through, but getting it to a C corporation. In fact, you know, doing some kind of a tax-free exchange so that you can take advantage of the permanent lower deduction there, and particularly fueled a lot of discussion about qualified small business stocks and whether or not that you can transfer the assets to a C corporation instead and take advantage of a qualified small business stock election, or not even election, but availability so that you don't have to pay capital gains on up to $10 million or 10 times your adjusted basis of the corporate stock. So that's for us has been, you know, sort of where the 199A has gone, which has sort of made people refocus on, to, you know, how their assets should be held and what kind of entity. A lot of people have asked that question, but then as soon as we go work through the analysis and show them, in fact, it turns out that you won't be able to afford yourself with this benefit under 199A, then the question then becomes, are there other ways that we could restructure this business to take advantage of other sections of the code? And I think that we've particularly seen that arise in the case of QSBS or qualified small business stock and um, actually going the opposite way where we thought many people might convert to a pass-through entity of some sort, maybe they remained as a C-Corp or in fact uh, converted to a C-Corp for the benefits of QSBS if it's afforded them under that section. Now, I'm kind of curious to pivot to a different issue here on sort of the, the subject of kind of general TCGA-related guidance. Of course, we had this new tax law enacted at the end of 2017, and then, you know, we got right into it in 2018. But it took over the course of months and months, and it's still ongoing. We're getting new guidance projects and regulations being released. How big of an issue in, in your practice was the lack of TCGA guidance when you're waiting eight months to really kind of get any details on this? Was that a big issue? I mean, did it put a lot of planning on hold while you waited for proposed regulations? I don't think it did. And I think that the reason is that there was a lot of, again, hubbub about both Section 199 Cap A, about the 20% deduction for pass-through entities, but also the hubbub related to qualified opportunity zones that also came out in the TCGA, which could afford people the potential advantage of eliminating their capital gains entirely on um, certain assets and, and certain kinds of funds. And those two are, in particular, took a, a lot of, a long time for regulations to be released from Treasury. And I think even just a couple of days ago, new regulations were released about qualified opportunity zones. I didn't find that those regulations, which dealt with the sort of nitty gritty of how certain assets are, or certain, you know, how basis was going to be treated and certain 90 day rules and, you know, very technical limitations that we were, you know, advisors are waiting on. But clients sort of really knew about the, okay, I get, I could potentially get 20% deduction for my pass-through entity, or I can defer gains by investing in a qualified opportunity zone fund. They sort of knew the high level stuff. So they weren't thinking about planning. But the real issue is, that, again, the one, the hubbub about 199A, it turns out to be a little bit more dead in the water than we thought, because there's so many restrictions and limitations that they covered before. And similarly, for qualified opportunity zones, we're finding that people were very excited about it. But then once you find out, well, I need to actually invest in a qualified opportunity zone. What are those investments? Where are they? How can I take advantage of them? It, people started realizing, oh, but are those investments good? You still want to have a, a good investment, a solid investment that you you vetted, that you, you believe will actually appreciate over time. And I think that's where people started hitting a wall. It wasn't in the regulations that were coming out about sort of the technical tax issues that people were looking forward to. It was really, all right, we know this is going to take effect. We feel pretty good about the potential for it. But now once we go to the next step and figure out, for example, with qualified opportunity zones, where are we going to invest? And what does that look like? That's where we're hitting a wall.
wall because a lot of people don't know what are the good investments in those zones. And they're having a hard time, at least as I found, and I know some of our advisors have found, of finding truly vetted, good, qualified investments in those zones that people feel very comfortable with to make investments in to be able to eliminate or defer those capital gains. So really the hubbub hasn't been about the regulations for me it has, and for the clients I've worked with or for the other advisors I've spoken to. It's been more around this actually isn't as effective as we thought it would be, or it turns out it's more difficult to take advantage of this section than we thought it would be. Um, I've always kind of been curious. Uh, whenever people talk about opportunities, zones, a lot of times the talk is about you know corporate investors and that sort of thing. But from your perspective, working with a wealth management practice, uh, what's the level of interest with your clients? Interest has been high. You know, the number one question I get from clients or friends or family or anyone from myself is, how do I eliminate my capital gains or reduce them? And it is actually... The code is is pretty tight around that. There are very few ways, clever ways or sophisticated techniques that you could take advantage of to eliminate or defer your capital gains. Suddenly, though, there was this qualified opportunity zone section that came out under the TCJA. And then people were hearing about it. Oh, now now there's a way. And you, this question, again, is always on people's minds of how do I reduce my tax liability? And suddenly there's a popular way out there that has been released and blessed by the IRS Treasury, in fact, by governors who created these zones. And so what can we do? How can we take care of it? And that is a very big question I've gotten from many, many, many of my clients. However, again, we run up against, okay, well, let's try to look at where we can invest your funds. What kind of funds are already out there and existing in the marketplace for you to invest in? And what do those funds look like? Where are they investing? What kind of assets? What are the quality of those assets? And it turns out that, again, as I've said, people aren't as comfortable once you get to that point. They're very excited. But then once you start looking into the weeds, of, uh, particularly on the investment side, they start getting a little bit less comfortable and less excited about that potential. And so I think people are sort of waiting for better funds to sort of pop up and better investments to pop up. I sense that they will in the next few months or even a year, particularly as latest round of regulations have come out. But so far, I found that most, in fact, all of our clients have, have declined to move forward once they look at what the investment field is. Wow, no kidding. I'm going to pivot to one last new development we've had recently. The uh, the Kasner case uh, was recently heard before the Supreme Court. And I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts. How big of a shift do you think that this could bring to the world of trust tax planning? And then any predictions on how the Supreme Court's going to rule on this? Well, I don't know if you listened to the oral arguments or read any of the transcripts. I did. I was very much anticipating this case, and, and I think a lot of people in the trust and states community were. And it, it looks like from the oral arguments that, one, justices on different sides are kind of in agreement, not universally, but more so than I thought they would be. You suddenly see Sotomayor and Gorsuch on the same side really drilling the state's position in this case on whether or not they have the right to tax those trusts in other states just because there's a beneficiary located in their state. And really, so there was a due process question that a lot of constitutional lawyers were really looking at. Then when you went to oral arguments, you really saw that the justices shied away from a broad sort of due process question and really focused on the mechanics of trust. The the sort of discretionary distributions came up from several justices about whether or not the income was actually owned by the beneficiary in that state. And there was a lot of skepticism there. So one, my hunch, my guess is that it will come out in favor of the taxpayer in these cases, that states will not have the right 
state. I don't know if it will be so broad, but from listening to the justices, it may seem that the states may not have the right to tax trust in other states just because the beneficiary is located in a state with a taxing authority. It's a highly anticipated case. I think it would maybe not change tax planning so much because there's not a lot you can do about that, but it would give a lot more comfort to certain kinds of trusts, for example, located in Delaware or South Dakota or Nevada or Alaska, where you really try to set up trust in these jurisdictions for many reasons, but one reason is for the income tax planning. And it would give a lot more assurance to those people that have trust in those jurisdictions that just because there are beneficiaries located in other jurisdictions that have a more aggressive form of taxation, that those those trusts would be safe from that undue sort of burden of additional taxation. Well, Brad, thank you so much for taking time to chat. This has been really interesting, and I'll check back with you after the Supreme Court rules. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a pleasure. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we preview commentary that will be appearing in the next issue of the Tax Notes magazines. We're joined by Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? In Tax Notes, Steve Butler and Ryan Phelps propose expanding the REIT rules in order to attract private investment to U.S. infrastructure. And Casey Chang considers the hypothetical distribution method in the proposed Section 956 regulations. In state tax notes, Caroline Bruckner and Annette Nellen discuss how gig workers are affected by Section 199A, as well as state actions to institute new income reporting requirements, while Alyssa McLaughlin and Kathleen Quinn discuss relevant case law concerning the imposition of tax on the owner of an entity, as well as two recent trust cases. And in Tax Notes International, Barry Larking discusses the extensive global input on the OECD's recent consultation document on the digital economy. And Sarah Hinchliff examines how Australia's retirement savings scheme applies to employers and employees participating in second-minute arrangements. We also want to remind listeners of the June 30 deadline of the student writing competition. For more information, visit taxnotes.com forward slash contest. You can read all that and a lot more in the May 6th editions of Tax Notes, State Tax Notes, and Tax Notes International. That's it for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.